I want to speak to you uh, this morning about the ways of God. About the ways of God. About how God works in our lives. What ways He operates in our lives. And uh, if you just had your own experience of this world, it wouldn't feel like there's any rhyme or reason to God's work. Life just taken as brute facts can feel like chaos. There's a war. Gas prices go up. There's family troubles. Your phone keeps ringing. They'd like to speak to you about your extended warranty. It's just one thing after another from all different angles. And it can feel like there's no rhyme or reason to what's happening in our lives. And yet the Bible tells us and makes it plain that God works in distinct and noticeable ways. That there are what can be called the ways of God. Now I had a professor in college, went to a Bible college, and he would say there's two kinds of people in the world. There's the kind who pray for parking spaces and the kind who don't. And what he meant by that is that the kind of people who, when they think about God's ways, they, they know His involvement in every little thing. And then there's others who are like, I don't think we can know God's involvement in every little thing. Well, I'm not trying to take a side in that argument, but, but I will say just this, that when I talk about the ways of God, I, I don't mean that I can tell you every precise thing God is doing in every facet of everything that's going on in the news or in your life. I, I don't have the read on exactly what God's doing in every particular of individual lives. So when I'm talking about the ways of God, about knowing how God works, I'm not particularly talking about whether God was angry at you this morning because you couldn't find good parking, or pleased with you because you found the seat you've always wanted when you came in this morning. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about understanding those rails, those tracks that God works along. And when you understand those, those principles that God works along, it provides an order and a ballast and an anchor for your life. It, it solidifies and strengthens your soul to know that life is not chaotic, that life is not out of control, but God is working as He promised to work, that He is predictable and good and right and kind and and you can understand his ways and when you when you don't understand his ways what happens is you invariably slide off into nihilism or legalism when you don't understand god's ways and everything's just coming at you as randomness Everything's just coming at you as just various experiences that you can't compute, can't make sense of. Then it can lead to the conclusion there's no meaning to life. The community of nihilistic. There's no meaning, no purpose, no reason. And Christians can get there too. Though we fundamentally believe that Jesus is on the throne, we can get to places where like, what's the point? Everything just seems scattered and disarrayed. And all of that happens when we don't understand God's ways. How God works. If we don't wind up in nihilism, we often wind up in legalism. 
Many people respond to the chaos they experience in everyday life by assuming if there's a divine power, if there's a God, His main message to me is be good, be better, do what's right. And so in the middle of all this chaos, our main preoccupation becomes not noticing the way God works, but assuming that the main thing in the universe is that I better keep my nose clean and do everything right in the midst of this chaotic world. Of course, that leads to all kinds of frustration and despair when you fail to do all the things you think you're called to do. And so I want us to think about the ways of God. Again, so they can be an anchor for our souls, so they can be rails that our mind runs along and understands how God is working in the world. It creates a people with centered lives, with lives that aren't scattered and all over the place when they can look at the world around them and know something of how God is working in the world. And we're in a narrative this morning, which means we're in a passage of Scripture that that tells us a story. Everybody loves a story. Preachers know that if you want to get attention, you just start by, let me tell you a story. And all of a sudden, the dead rise and, 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 and the sleeping awake. Uh, because we have a, an inclination as human beings to stories. But stories don't teach the way the more didactic portions of Scripture do. The way the more teachy portions of Scripture do. The way the Romans does. Stories don't come right out and say things like, the Gentiles will be saved by faith. Stories do things more like, they have wise men from the East come to worship Jesus. And they say to us, the Gentiles will come to Jesus to believe in Him by faith. So stories show more than they tell a lot of times. Like your English teacher may have told you to do. Show, don't tell. So stories, they they don't just come right out and say, this is the ways of God. But as we read them and notice what's happening, we begin to see the ways God works in the world as we notice what's happening in the stories. And what we have this morning in Matthew is one more story that introduces us to Jesus. That's what Matthew's been doing. He's been giving us story after story that introduces us to Jesus. Who's Jesus? Matthew says, let me tell you his genealogy. He comes from the Jewish people. He's going to be a son of King David. Who's Jesus? Matthew says, let me tell you. He's the one. uh, The virgin is going to conceive and have a son. He's God with us. He's Emmanuel. Who's Jesus? Matthew says, well, listen, he's the king who'll be born in Bethlehem. So Matthew's just introducing us to Jesus story after story. Maybe you've done this. There's someone you respect or admire, and you want to tell your friends or family about this person, and so you just start telling them stories about this person, why you think they're so amazing. This is what Matthew is doing. He's telling us stories of Jesus to help us see who He is. And as we hear these stories, we can begin to discern the ways of God. And as we discern the ways of God, we get an anchor for our souls. Well, I want you to notice that in this story, we can notice three particular ways in, God, in which God works. Three particular ways in which God works. And the first is this. He works through the supernatural to advance the cause of Christ. He works through supernatural means to advance the cause of Christ. That's one of the ways of God. He works that way even today. He works through the supernatural to advance the cause 
of Christ. You see the supernatural there, right there in verse 12. Now when they had departed. Now who had departed? Uh, the guys who'd followed a star to get there. So we're already reminded of how deeply supernatural these stories. The guys who followed a star that landed over Mary and Joseph's house and blinked, blinked, blinked and said, go in there. They now departed. Why did they depart? Well, if you go back to verse 12, it's because they were warned in a dream not to return to Herod. They departed to their own country by another way. So the men who arrived supernaturally now depart because they've been instructed through a dream to depart supernaturally. And so there's all kinds of supernatural work going on here in this passage. And then we're told, not only did they depart, but once they depart, and one supernatural event is over, behold, I love that Matthew writes in a narrative, behold, it's like, stop in the story and just don't not get this, behold. If you read that in a modern novel, you might feel, that's a touch patronizing. You know, you're just reading along and, the, and then the author says, now notice this. Okay, okay, I will. Behold, an angel of the Lord. And so again, a supernatural being enters in to the story. And the supernatural being appears to Joseph in a supernatural way. In a dream. The angel of the Lord who appeared to Joseph in a dream and said something that you could only know if you knew the future. So the angel reveals something supernatural. The angel says, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And of course, in the next passage, the one we'll cover, I hope, next week, Herod will order the execution of every child under two in the town of Bethlehem. But the angel knew that in advance because that's what angels do. They know things in advance because God tells it to them. And so here we have God moving supernaturally. We made a point about this a couple weeks ago that if you can't, or I guess it was last week, you can't fathom the supernatural, you're going to have a very hard time with Matthew. But because we believe in a God who created all things, the idea of Him intervening is not irrational or illogical at all. A God who can speak the whole world into existence can interfere every now and then, now and then and make a virgin conceive. This is not irrational or illogical. It doesn't do anything to destroy the laws of science. So what we're told here is that this supernatural work is continuing around the work of Christ. An angel appears to Joseph in a dream. The angel tells Joseph the future. But now notice this. The supernatural and the miraculous are never just done for party tricks. They're always done to advance the cause of Christ. Why is the angel there? Why is the angel speaking? Why is Joseph being spoken to in a dream? It's not so Joseph will walk up and say, that's cool, I should start a new religious movement. It's so that baby Jesus doesn't die. 
It's so that the child who must be protected until his mission is accomplished does not die. All the supernatural that's happening is happening so that this child can accomplish the mission God has given him to do. Which brings me to my point. God moves. Here's one of the ways of God. God moves supernaturally. But don't forget this last part. To advance the cause of the kingdom of Christ. When I was converted about 25 years ago, the big thing on the church scene was what was called the Toronto Blessing. And there was all kinds of activity around uh, the Toronto Airport Vineyard Church where people were having holy laughter and people were being slain in the Spirit and all kinds of supernatural things were happening. Uh, That trend has continued these last 25 years and pops up in churches all over America and Canada in the world where someone starts getting gold teeth from God or rainbow teeth from God or barking like a dog from God. And, And the problem is not that there's the miraculous. The problem is that the miraculous does nothing to serve the cause of Christ. The miraculous in the Bible is always to advance the cause of Jesus Christ. Think about the miracles of Jesus, if you will. How many times did Jesus get together a group of friends and say, let me show you what I got. I can do some cool stuff. He never used His miracles for party tricks. He never used His miracles. There's, there's not a single instance of Jesus playing a shell game in the, in, the, in the New Testament. There's not a single instance of Jesus doing party tricks because Jesus just displaying raw power was never his goal. All of his miracles display who he is. He makes the blind see. He makes the lame walk. He makes the dead rise again. His miracles are always meant to put him on display. This is the way God works. The supernatural that God does always advances the cause of Christ. And this is helpful for us to discern in the world we're in. Because we need to be very clear that God is not the only one in the universe who does the supernatural. When you go back in your Old Testament and and read the book of Exodus and you read about Moses doing miracles in front of Pharaoh, you see that Moses would take a stick and throw it on the ground and it would turn into a snake. Or you see Moses could turn water into blood. But then you read a little more carefully and you find out this. Pharaoh's non-believing, non-Christian, godless magicians could do the very same things. There are more miracles in the world than the ones that come from the people of God. There is real spiritual power outside of the church. There is real spiritual power in the godless religions of the world. Daniel Taylor, the missionary to China and Sri Lanka, tells a story of when he began to minister in Sri Lanka and there were uh, these firewalkers, uh, men who would lay out uh, coals and run across the coals and, and show their supernatural power by running across hot coals. And there was a liberal missionary there, a missionary who didn't believe in the miracles of the Bible. And so this liberal missionary figured, well, you know what? These people running over hot coals, they're just people who are running really fast or kind of mind over matter or maybe thick calluses. I don't know. And so he decided to give it a try. And he burned himself severely. Because let me just tell you in case you're not aware, you can't run over hot coals. 
unless you've got demonic power. And there are many in our day, teenagers, you'll be exposed to this, who are being exposed to Ouija boards, to past life regression, uh, to Wiccan spells. And the Christian response is not, there's nothing there. The Christian response is, there's great power there, and you ought to be aware. I love the story. Martin Lloyd-Jones again, I'm sorry. Here we go. I love the story of during Lloyd-Jones's ministry in Wales, there was a woman who did seances for quite a bit of money. And uh, one day she felt led to go and hear Lloyd-Jones preach. And so she left this very lucrative seance that she was going to do to go and hear uh, Lloyd-Jones preach. And said, she said, when she walked into the chapel there in Wales where Lloyd-Jones was preaching, she said, I felt the same power I dealt with all the time except clean. She was, deal she was used to spirits. Just not the Holy Spirit. And so here we see in this passage, God is showing us He works along certain principles. He, he does the supernatural. But we shouldn't be dupes as Christians that is anytime anything is supernatural, we go, that must be of God. No, we are aware that when something is happening supernatural, it ought to do one thing if we're going to care what's happening. It ought to advance the cause of Christ. It's the cause of Christ. When there are miracles being done, we ought to be asking, what has this done to serve the cause of the Gospel? When the man who's lame is healed in the book of Acts, what does Peter do? He doesn't say, hey folks, cool. He goes, let me preach to you this Christ. His cross. His resurrection. Let me preach to you about the One in whom the miracle, whose name the miracle was done. And this ought to really shape our expectations for even the sharing time we have on Sunday mornings. We ought to desire supernatural gifts. We ought to desire that people be healed in our midst. We ought to desire that prophecies be given and those prophecies make some unbelievers go, whoa, how did they know that about me? God must be in their midst. We ought to desire that. Well, that might derail us from the cause of Christ. No, it won't. Because we know this track on which God works. His supernatural works, they always advance the cause of Christ. And, and we know this because when Paul guided us in how to treat the spiritual gifts, he told us, now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not you want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. When supernatural gifts come along and people use them to curse the name of Jesus, we don't need to be thrown into a tissy as a church. We say, because we know the ways of God, that was not of God. And when we see God do supernatural things, people healed, marriages restored, children converted, prophecies given that give unique insight and help to particular Christians and, and maybe even and disclose what unbelievers were thinking in such a way they're converted, when it leads to greater praise and worship of Jesus Christ, we say, praise the Lord. Because we know the ways God works. And the way God works is He grants the supernatural, but He grants the supernatural for one reason and one reason only. To advance the cause of Christ. Now there's one last consolation before I leave this point. 
Many of you have prayed for God to work supernaturally. And the one you wanted healed wasn't healed. And the breakthrough you wanted to see never came. What's going on there? It was that giving that miracle would not have advanced the cause of Christ. Giving that healing would not have advanced the cause of Christ. If God's left you in a suffering, if He's left you in a trial, it's not because He is not a God who doesn't work miracles today. It's because He's a God who would, He would be denying you His best if He, if He delivered you out of it with a miracle. Because if a miracle would be the best thing for you in your life right now, I promise you'd have it yesterday. Because no good thing does He withhold from those who walk uprightly. What a ballast to our souls to, to know how God works. To know how God works. To know that He is the God who works supernaturally. But I'm not just thrown around by every supernatural work I see. He's the one who works supernaturally only and exclusively to advance the cause of Christ. And I'll just, I said I was going to leave this point, but I've got to throw one more thing in. Here at the beginning of Jesus' life, miracles are everywhere. Dreams preserve Him. A miracle creates Him. Dreams guard His life. At the end of His life, the miracles won't come. There will be no miracle that keeps Him away from the cross. In fact, He won't even take natural painkillers to blunt the pain of the cross. The miracles for Christ wasn't just because God always does miracles to get us out of every hard situation. The miracles were for Christ were to advance the cause of Christ. And when they were there and needed to keep Him alive to accomplish His mission, they came, they came, they came. And when they would have interfered with His mission to lay His life down for sinners, they were nowhere to be found. He was allowed to die like you and I are going to face death. But He was allowed to die so that you and I will never see death. His death is the death that delivers us from death. His resurrection is the miracle that triumphs over our graves. He was given miracles when it was needed to accomplish our salvation and no miracles when it was needed to accomplish our salvation. This is the way God works. He works supernaturally so that He can advance the cause of Christ. Amen? The second thing I want you to see is that He uses our obedience. He uses our obedience to advance the cause of Christ. Now I said a minute ago that in a chaotic world, lots of religions are prone to legalism. It's a big old chaotic world. What do people want? Give me some rules to follow. Chaos everywhere. Tell me what to do. If I do it, do I get heaven? Do I get nirvana? Just, just give it to me. Do I get paradise? That's the way, that's one of the main ways people respond to this world of chaos. Give me a list of rules and I'll do them so I can get the good life later. I want to be very clear before I even make this point. When I'm talking about obedience, I am not talking about the kind of obedience that we see in every religion on earth, which is do this and you'll live. Do the good stuff, you'll get nirvana, you'll get paradise, you'll get heaven, you'll get whatever. I'm talking about evangelical obedience, which is because God has spoken to you about Christ and He's done everything necessary for your salvation, 
Because He died on the cross for you. Because He shed His blood for you. Because He rose for you. Because He's already declared you righteous before you live one day of your Christian life on the day you believe. Therefore, obey. I'm not going to say it again, but I hope I said it clearly. That's the kind of obedience I'm talking about. That grace-based obedience. But notice how important obedience is to advancing the cause of Christ. Notice how important it is. It says here in uh, verse 13, now notice the angel's words, because every one of them matter. Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. So notice the commands. Get up, get the child and his mother, flee, like don't saunter, don't dilly-dally, get moving, flee, and he says, to Egypt and remain there until further orders. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Now notice Joseph's response in verse 14. And he rose. Angel says rise. Joseph says rose. Okay, that, that's how this goes. Sorry, I didn't mean that. Uh, so he rise, rose, and then what did he do? He took the child and his mother by night. That's fleeing. This wasn't, you didn't wait till day. It's a daring evening escape. Took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. And how long did he stay there? He remained there until the death of Herod. So what we have here, what, 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 we're, what we're being told in narrative form, in the form of a story, is Joseph was meticulously obedient. Now, some of you have had children. And you know that you can give very careful instructions with lots of details that matter. And something similar to what you said is what happens. And often, that's a great frustration to us because the details of what we said actually mattered. We didn't say them because we just like to speak, though we can like to speak too much, that's possible. But because the details actually mattered. And here we have God speaking to Joseph and Joseph recognizing that every detail mattered and that then Joseph went on to do each detail and what's the end result? What happened? Jesus lived. Jesus lived. Jesus does not live apart from Joseph's obedience here in this passage. Now you may say, isn't God sovereign? Can't He work even when we fail? Of course He can. And yet, the way He chooses to work is He chooses to preserve the life of Christ by Joseph's obedience. Now I have had the unbelievable privilege of seeing Emmanuel Baptist Church grow from about 17 people when I first came to this congregation and this sanctuary getting fuller and fuller every week. Or at least the last couple of weeks seems to be getting fuller. So 17 to six or 700 people. 700 last week. And in the process of that, there are many who would say, well, what you really need to do to make that happen is you, there's various principles of church growth and you need to really institute them. And if you put these principles of church growth in place, then generally your church will grow. Now, 
I don't want to be too hard on those things. Sometimes principles of church growth are just good common sense. Communicate well. Let people know what you're doing. Make sure it's understood what the church is all about. That can be good. But at the end of the day, I can put my head on the pillow and know that the reason God took us from 17 to six or 700 people on a Sunday was not because we were trying to do whatever would be most magnetic to the largest audience, but just by trying to obey what the Scriptures say. You need to understand that in the history of the church, what Baptists are, and sadly you could almost never figure this out from what Baptists are today, but if you go back into the early 1600s and look at what fundamentally is happening when people become Baptists, what is it? It's a fundamental commitment to shape your church as close to the New Testament as you possibly can. Yes, there are various uh, cultural factors. They didn't have sanctuaries like this in the first century. We get that. We understand that. But they preached a biblical gospel that Jesus had died, that He rose again, and that you could be saved if you repented and believed in Him. They gathered in their numbers and counted them and cared for them. They appointed elders who were godly men who would oversee the flock. They appointed deacons who would serve others. They they cared to walk through all the precise commands of Scripture, whether it's uh, popular ones like love one another or unpopular ones like dress modestly. Those kinds of commands. That meticulous care for each detail is at the end of the day what builds the church. Joseph is a model for us of what Matthew is going for in the whole book. Go therefore and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded. You see, one of the great mistakes of the modern church is they view the commands of Jesus as the enemies of the Great Commission. Oh, it happens all the time. If you're really persnickety about exactly what Jesus Christ has commanded us to do, then you will be uh, too much of a stick in the mud or you won't be able to be flexible enough for evangelism. If you uh, regulate things like, like let's say you have men-only pastors, godly men-only pastors, you'll be so out of sync with the rest of the culture that you won't be able to see the Gospel go forward. But beloved, the example of Joseph the command of Matthew, and what we see throughout the New Testament is you don't have to be a rocket science to grow a church. You just have to do what the Bible says. And that's our commitment as a church to just dig into the Scriptures. If 100 people leave one week or if 200 people come the next week, we really want to not be primarily focused on that, but simply be asking, are we doing what the Bible says we ought to do? And then the blessing is up to God. And that ought to be the way you govern your own life as well. The way you think about the decisions of your own life, your, your practical daily decisions, ought to be, we did this a couple weeks ago, how do I follow the example of Joseph? He got explicit commands. God does not say, I have precise commands, do something close to that. That's not, that's not, that's not, that's not, he's not into that kind of a relationship with his children. 
He says, I want to give you my word. And then I want you to study my word and notice my word and be aware of the details of my word. And then I want you to do my word. And I will bless it. I will bless it. And I'll tell you what, there is great freedom for a pastor and the people in only worrying about that. Did we do the right thing to win millions to Jesus because people are going to hell? What a pressure to live under. And I would be crushed. Except I try, and I hope you will try, just to take this as my lead. Are we seeking to be faithful to what God has revealed? And if we're faithful to what God has revealed, the cause of Christ will be advanced. Look at Titus chapter 2 for a moment. Titus chapter 2 for a moment. I mentioned earlier that Joseph was obedient. Angel said, rise, he rose. And his obedience advanced the cause of Christ. Christ lives because Joseph obeys. That's what Matthew's going for. Teach them everything I have commanded you. That's how churches ought to be built. What does the Bible say? And do that and trust God with the results. Church might wind up being 30, might wind up being 3,000. Well, just seek to do what it says and leave the results to God. But the same principle is how we order our own lives. And I want you to notice as we read through Titus 2, how much our obedience affects the cause of Christ. Notice for, look for words like reproach and adorn. You can live a certain way that will reproach the cause of Christ. You can live a certain way that adorns the cause of Christ. And the whole idea is our obedience is what makes the Gospel shine in the world. Paul, Paul says to Titus in chapter 2, verse 1, but as for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands. Notice this that the Word of God may not be reviled. Why, why are we doing this? Why are we doing this? Why, why, why do we follow these commands? We're, we're, was Roman culture just really into dignified older men? Was Roman culture just really into wives and mothers that cared for their husbands and children? No. Come on. How many of you guys, your kids are getting classical education. Surely you know this. But their consciences knew what was right. The Roman conscience was like every conscience. It knew the ways of God. And if we order our lives according to God's Word, it keeps the Gospel itself from being reviled. There's a sense deep down in every Christian soul that the Christian way is right. Even though in a world, we live in a world where we can't even seem to think about what, what gender a person is. We don't even know how to think right about that. Deep down in the conscience, there is an awareness that older men ought to be dignified. Older women ought to love their husbands and their children. And when the church lives like that, 
It keeps the reviling on the church down. Verse 9, Likewise, the younger men to be self-controlled. This is, this is the great place younger men struggle. Younger men struggle to be self-controlled. And Paul says to Titus, the younger men, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. In your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. You see what's happening here? When we walk in obedience, the commands Jesus gives are just arbitrary. Hey, I got an idea. I'll save you and then make you live in a weird way that'll make your life miserable. How's that sound? I'll make you stick out like a sore thumb in the culture you're in. No. The commands are to resonate with that world, even though the world says they don't even buy into it at all. The fact is, if we live in Christ's way, it silences the opposition because they know those ways are right. Bond servants, slaves, we could apply this to employees, are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative. Some of you watched a bunch of office sitcoms and you got the idea that argumentative was appreciated by bosses. It's not. It's not. It's appreciated by coworkers, but bosses hate it. So we're going to be not argumentative, not pilfering, not stealing, but showing all good faith. Now listen to this. So that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. What is, the, what is the church? What is the church's obedience? It's like earrings on a pretty face. It, it shines and shows the face of Jesus Christ. It's like some of you ladies could look at your wedding ring. You might notice that the diamond is sitting on white gold. Diamonds always, for even on yellow gold rings, the diamond sits on white gold. Why? Because it adorns the diamond. It makes the diamond shine a little brighter. And the idea here is that our obedience shines the glory of Jesus in the church. Well, I got one more point, but it's going to have to come next week. So let me wrap this up. We live in a world where there's a million messages coming at us from a, a million different directions. And it can be very hard to know what's going on in our lives. It can feel all chaos. But there's a ballast that comes to your soul from knowing how God works. He works supernaturally, yes, but only to accomplish the kingdom of Christ. And so that's why we look for the supernatural. Not just anything supernatural. That can come anywhere. And we obey not to get His favor. We've received that in the Gospel. We'll celebrate that in the Lord's Supper. No, we won't. We'll celebrate that in baptism. We've received grace in Christ, but then we obey and our obedience, just because God has settled everything in our account, doesn't make our obedience meaningless. A church that's full of disobedient people mars the name of Christ, slows the advance of the gospel, makes people want to spit when they hear the name of Jesus. But a church that's growing by a grace-driven obedience, that church adorns, that church advances the kingdom of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we come before You and we pray that You would pour out Your Spirit on Your people to obey You, to know You, 
and to really live in the light of your gospel. Lord, we pray that you do this in Jesus' name. Amen.